0: We just sang in the last stands of "Alas, and did my Savior bleed. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. tis all that I can do. And yet there were those in Ephesus. That couldn't bring themselves to give themselves away for the one who had bled and died for them. Let's give our attention to this passage beginning with verse 17 in Ephesians 4. Now, this I say and testify in the Lord that you must. no no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you've heard about him, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, beauty. Let's bow together. Lord, we are so prone to wander. And evidently, the... There were folks in Ephesus like that. Will you today, through your word, point out to us, if we, if we truly are your child, will you point out to us where, where we are not acting like a child of the living God acts? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as as we've gone through the uh, book of Ephesians, the first three chapters are laying the base, the theological base, uh, telling us what salvation is, uh, teaching us of how we were uh, loved in him before the foundation of the world how we are saved, and and if we are in Christ, if we're trusting in Christ alone for our eternal life, it's not because of any works that we have done. I want to clear that up before we ever talk about how we ought to be acting. It's not about any works that we have done or could do to earn that salvation, but it is by grace undeserved favor of his through faith. And even that faith is a gift from God to us. So in the latter part of the book that we are in, in chapter 4 through the end of the book, he teaches one practical thing after another to the church there in Ephesus. And what he is dealing with here are uh, people that would claim, if you, if you said, are, are you a, a Christian, they would say, yes, I'm a Christian. But by the evidence here, there is no evidence. And he's confronting them with that. But he doesn't leave them just in despair and, and guilt. And neither will we. The good news The good news for us today is that This table is at the end of our day, a table to strengthen us, to be who we are, to do that which our identity calls us to do. But let's take a look at uh, what Paul says. First of all, believers must not live like unbelievers. Verse 17, this I say, testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. Now, why is Paul picking on the poor Gentiles? He's not picking on a race of people. Remember, we had we'd already talked about how some some Gentiles were were believers, and that that was even one of the issues within the church, where he said, Look, there's not a, a dividing wall between you you Jews who are believers and you Gentiles who are believers. That wall is is no longer there. So what, why does he bring the idea of Gentiles? He's talking about what, what they would have called pagans, people outside the covenant. And, the, and there's no way us using the term Gentiles against one another. I mean, if somebody called me a Gentile, I'd say, yeah, well, you know, so what? That's not that big a deal. But in, in, in this day... To call a person of faith a Gentile brought horror. It was awful. You faithless, pagan, unbelieving, you just continue to add to it. That's what it is when they would call somebody a Gentile. Now, why are believers not to live that way? Well, he explained that over in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. You can look this up later. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So Paul doesn't just say, here's what not to do and what to do. Just do it. He says, look. You're not living according to who you are. You're not living according to your identity in Christ. You are living as if you don't even know Christ. And then he gives examples. He gives three descriptions here. Basically, you're thinking wrong, you act like you're still separated from God, and you're acting wrong. Other than that, you're fine, I think he would say. So he hits these, these three. The first one, wrong thinking, he said in verse 17, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Now, it's interesting that he doesn't start with their actions. He starts with their thoughts, with their thinking patterns. And he says, this, this is the first, the first issue that you have. And in verse 18, he said, in talking about what the Gentiles are like, he says, They are darkened in their understanding. And so the the implication is, look, you're not darkened, but you're acting like you're still in the dark in terms of how you are thinking. In 2 Corinthians again, (coughs) and I'll just say, excuse me uh, one time for all my coughing. It sneaks up on me. I don't even know it's coming, so uh, uh, please pardon me for all those... uh, that are coming. In, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, he says, even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Do you see what he's saying? They're in the dark. Satan has blinded their minds, but the issue in Ephesus is you're acting like you're in the dark. Your thinking patterns are as if your understanding is darkened. And so I'm going to give you some evaluation questions today as we approach the table. One evaluation question is, is there any difference between the way I think and an unbeliever would think? Is there any difference? Now, there's always going to be similarities in things that we look at, but if if we're new creatures, new creations, there surely, well, must be some ways that we think differently as well. Let me give you some examples. How about how you think about raising your children? Is there any way you think about it differently? I mean, after all, If you're in Christ, you look at your child and say, This child is in the image of God and has value. The God of the universe cares about this child. Do you think there should be a difference in how we think about raising our children than there is those who don't look at it that way? There better be. There ought to be. How about how you think about using your money? How about how you think about what you'll watch on TV or what movies you'll go to? Do you think any differently about that because of your identity, because of who you are in Christ, because of, of the one who shed his blood for you on the cross? Am I making decisions any differently than an unbeliever in this world makes decisions? So he begins by addressing They're thinking. And then he says this about the unbeliever, the Gentile. He says, don't forget the unbeliever is is separated from God. (coughs) Verse 18, he says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Estranged, separated from God. With ignorance pertaining to, to spiritual things. Is there a difference in your life? The fact that you are not alienated from God? Let me give you an example I've seen far too often through the years where believers and unbelievers that I've encountered have sometimes looked at the same thing, unfortunately, in the same way when one is getting near the end of their life. I've been around some believers who would say, absolutely, I believe there is heaven. There is another life. And I've been around unbelievers that say, there's nothing after this. Now, you would think there would be a difference between how those two look at the end of their life. Not not the moment of death. Nobody looks forward to that. Not that process, but but what's going to happen next? And sadly, I've seen far too many believers act as if and speak as if dying is the worst possible thing that could happen to them. And you know, it's not. Paul says... From a believer's perspective, to die is gain. There should be no comparison how a believer and unbeliever looks at their own death from this life. We should never act as if we're still separated from God. And then he goes on, he, he basically says, with the unbeliever, their sensitivity is gone and actions follow, likewise. Says verse, uh, the end of 18, due to the hard, their hardness of heart, they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That word translated hardness is like a, a callous or a, a hard like marble. So, The step towards sin was getting callous towards it and then getting used to it and then indulging in it. And he's saying, look, I I don't see difference between you and the Gentiles. You're acting like them in this way. Let me give you another diagnostic question. You go to a party at school, in college, at your office, in your neighborhood, and you, could, you, you, you can use your own example, but just use this, a, a, a get-together. Is there anything in the way I'm acting that distinguishes me from those who don't know God? Anything? What things in my life, other than going to church on Sunday, distinguish me from those around me that don't know Christ? That should not be the only distinction, what you do on Sunday morning. So then Paul goes on and tells them what they must do. And the remedy (coughs) is not just, okay, straighten up and fly right. That's not the remedy. Because we can try to do that. Even people that aren't different than the unbelievers, they're, they're trying in their own strength. Basically, believers must live according to their own calling. Look at verse 20. But this is not the way you learned Christ He's basically saying, you don't need to live like an unbeliever. You don't have to live that way anymore. So he uses three verbs in describing their calling. He talks about knowing and trusting Christ, verse 20. That's not the way you learned Christ. Now, this is not about finding the historical Jesus, like all those specials that will come on before Easter on the History Channel. Don't bother. I mean, I'm not saying don't watch, don't watch. You can watch them if you want, but don't get your theology there. That's a poor place to go for that. But this isn't just knowing about Jesus or learning about the historic Jesus. When he says, talks about you learned Christ, he's talking about trusting him knowing him in that way, having a relationship with him. And then he, not only have you learned him, but you have heard him. Assuming, verse 21, that you have heard, my version says, about him and were taught in him as the truth in Jesus. I think that's probably an unfortunate translation. I I think it should be instead of heard about him, it's heard him. You heard him. Now what's that mean? Well, Jesus talked about you hearing him. In John 10, verse 27, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. That's hearing him. And it's with all the voices that are out there, you're hearing his. And then the question is, will you follow that which you have heard? And then being taught in him, verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Jesus is, he's the air, he's the atmosphere, he's the teacher, he's the classroom, He is the lesson. He is all of that. Not only the teaching, but the instruction itself. So then Paul goes on and gives an application. Verse 22, he says, To put off your old self, which belongs to the former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Now we're going to go into that uh, as we move forward next week. We're going to go into that in more depth, the putting off and the putting on for next week. But I I wanted to read that part because that's that's how we deal with this. And what this tells me is, is this. The Apostle Paul would never have given in to cheap grace. Now, cheap grace is what um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, wrote about. He was, he was concerned that there were those that, that were saying, it, it's all about grace. You can do whatever you want because grace, There's grace. Here's how he addresses it. And I'm convinced he's right. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living, and incarnate. you get it? you see what he's saying there? He's not saying you earn your grace, but he's saying what goes with it is the right response, which is when we see that we're acting like the unbeliever, the response is repentance and change. Now when we read something like that, I've got to immediately caution you against a false righteousness. Self-righteousness is a false righteousness. It's counterfeit. And I caution you against coming to this table with a a self-righteous attitude or a false righteousness. That would be making a mockery of everything this table stands for. It's not self-realization. You know, the, here, here's the thing. The, the difficult part of Christian living isn't the struggle to be good. When we are in a good state of mind, we can be good. We can be kind. We can do all those things. That's not the struggle. The struggle is to do it in Christ. Christ. One can be good even without Christ, but you won't be good for long because you don't have the strength to do it in your own strength. It'll go away. And here's another diagnostic statement. If you're conscious of your own righteousness, then it's probably not righteousness from God. It's probably a a self-righteousness. If you're conscious of your own virtue, that may be evidence that you're self-righteous. I'll give you two examples from the Scripture in that. You remember when Moses, who had been with God, came down from the mountain, having met with God? What did he look like? His face was glowing, wasn't it? He didn't even know that. Others saw it. But he didn't say, hey, check this out, huh? Been with God. Do you see the difference there? On the opposite end, Samson didn't know it when the power of God had left him. So it's not about your self-conscious virtue. It's about being in Christ. It's about utter dependence upon Christ. It's about walking our walk and living our life and approaching this table saying, there is no way I can come to this table except in the righteousness of Christ. I've got nothing in my hands to bring. Nothing. And so for today I have I actually regret doing this but I in in your outline I called it the off putting table. I know that's that's a dumb thing to say. Putting off, you know, the I think I should have done it in the positive, the putting on table. <laughs> but you get it. In other words, I chose that because if we are to have the desire and then the strength to put off our old self and to put on the new, it must be the strength that comes from Christ. It will never be enough if we depend upon our own strength. Strength that comes from the ordinary means of grace. And that's that's prayer, the Word, and the sacraments. And this is one of our sacraments. And so as we come today to this table, it's not because we are good and strong. It is because we, because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, we who are trusting in Christ alone, we realize I have no right to come to this table except Jesus set the table for me by what he did on the cross. This is how the Apostle Paul put it. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. By the way, one way we can be unworthy is to think we're worthy. Anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. So this invitation is for you who are trusting in Christ alone for your eternal life. Not your works, not your righteousness, not your church attendance, not your baptism, nothing in your hands you bring, only to the cross you cling. And then you're not holding on to other things either, like idols, like sin that you're unwilling to let go of. And then, as you have asked God to examine you today, Where you are living like the Gentiles, according to this passage, where your thinking is like those who are darkened and alienated from God, where there is no difference, there should be repentance. To turn from it toward Christ for strength to endure, for strength to obey and strength even to enjoy this glorious meal. Let's bow together. Lord, we, we do pray that your Holy Spirit would point out to us whether we ought to be coming to this table today, But as we do, Lord, will you help us to rejoice in you, not not to to leave our, our grief and mourning behind so that we can rejoice in the glorious work of Jesus on the cross that was enough, enough to cover all those things that we need to put behind us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.